Hello and welcome to Open Door Films. Before I talk about my guest today, I'd like to briefly mention the sponsors of this podcast. First off, let's talk about Fountain. Fountain is a podcasting app that allows you to find your favorite creators and support them by streaming them Satoshis, aka increments of Bitcoin. In addition to that, you're actually able to earn Bitcoin while listening to these same podcasters. It's no joke. All you got to do is just download the Fountain app, find your favorite podcasters that you regularly listen to on another platform, and you'll be able to earn Bitcoin as you listen to the same episode you would have normally found on another platform like Spotify or Apple. And that's what makes Fountain, Fountain great. You're basically being rewarded for giving your time to people you already admire for their creativity. And speaking of creativity, if you're looking to create your own podcast, that's where the second sponsor of this, po- of this podcast episode comes from, and that would be Anchor. Anchor is a podcasting platform that allows you to create your own podcast for free, and it takes out all the hard work of having you to pu- and publish every episode individually on every platform. So basically, if you wanted to start a podcast now, all you got to do is record yourself, publish the episode on Anchor, and it's going to distribute it across Apple, Spotify, Fountain, Lisbon, CurioCaster, Podfreeze, the whole shebang. Now, let's move on to my guest Jackson Van Horn, who in addition to being a student of film, He's also a filmmaker, a director, and a writer, and just a very intelligent human being and the kind of person I love having this podcast because in addition to being able to talk about film, our favorite directors, and just basically having a few good laughs, we were able to talk about a diverse array of topics such as the Disneyfication of film culture, Bitcoin, the current political climate and how there's an absurdity to it that can hopefully create room for a lot of great storytelling, as well as just the total disarray of the American experiment. Again, we talked about a lot of things, and I don't want to spoil too much. I want you to enjoy the show, and uh, just check out Jackson's profile, and hope. Oh, and uh, I guess that's all I have to say, so enjoy the show. Okay, I just started recording. Well, thanks again, Jackson, for coming on. And uh, well, I just wanted to let you know, you don't feel pressured. It's just a simple, I mean, we're just winging it. And uh, we can just start by just telling us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so um, thanks again so much for having me today. I'm really excited for the conversation. Um, But my name's Jackson Van Horn. I'm a filmmaker. Um, I'm currently a student at the USC School of Cinematic Arts. Um, I love film producing and directing. I've dabbled in short films to music videos to television. Um, and I'm just super grateful for the opportunity to come on and discuss cinema, which I, I love and I, I know you do too. Well, one thing I love about cinema overall is just the, uh, the vast amount of intellectual discourse it can start because I've had several interviews. And what I love about it is that it can just trigger and just split the conversation into a multitude of subjects that really had nothing to do with it because the one thing I love about cinema is that one misassumption people have about learning about cinema is that somehow you they feel they have to read books on cinema right or focus on topics specifically on cinema when we know that's total bullshit many of the great filmmakers just read some of the best books that had nothing to do with cinema I mean you see whether you're talking about science philosophy history and do you feel that there's that there's some truth to that? I I mean I definitely agree with the fact that you need to have 
a global perspective and a pretty big understanding of just various topics. Um, a film director I love, George Lucas, talks about how important psychology plays a role in film. So it's important to have just sort of a general understanding, I think, of that. But in terms of, I think, learning film and the art of it, it's nothing beats practical experience and just getting out there and trying stuff. Um, I'm very much a visual learner and practical learner. And so that's always just been my sort of go-to, but I still think it's important to have that sort of foundational understanding of the way the world works. It's interesting that you bring up George Lucas, given that much of his work was, well, much of his work with Star Wars is heavily inspired by the work of Joseph Campbell, which mm -hmm. did look at the world from a global, well, I mean, he did look at, at not just cinema, just narrative in general from a global perspective given that the hero with a thousand faces, which I'm curious, have you read the book? I have not. Oh, it's a great book because it just works like a, like a great model for storytelling and how human human kind has followed this pattern for so long that the idea of a hero, the hero's journey has just served as a modicum for storytelling for so long. I mean, I highly recommend it and I'll even send you a link after this interview. Right. Yeah. I would appreciate that. Thank you. Oh, you're going to love it, especially because it just incorporates so much psychology and philosophy in it, and especially the Jungian archetypes. But uh, when Lucas commented how that book helped him create many of the stories of Star Wars, and I'm actually curious, what are your thoughts on Lucas now? I mean, give, I mean given his work with Star Wars after the original series and just how the franchise itself has shifted. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's definitely, uh, <clears throat> being fully honest, I'm not the biggest fan of the sequel trilogy, nor the prequels. I'm really a fan of the, you know, original with Mark Hamill and the whole crew. Um, you know, I think he definitely made some interesting choices in the prequels and things like that. I think a lot of it had to do with the capabilities at the time. I'm sure he would have loved to tell it when the original trilogy came out. However, just special effects wise, it wasn't up to par with what he was hoping. Mm. Um, I, I think, and it's unfortunate, but I think that after he sort of sold the franchise to Disney, they struggled with it for a bit. And I think we see that very prevalent in the second, um, the uh, sequel trilogy, um, just in terms of the lack of cohesive storytelling throughout the three yes. movies, just it had different directors, different writers. It was this whole thing. I think now we're finally starting to see it sort of come around with the television series. Um, you know, Mandalorian, I'm a great fan of. I'm not sure if you've seen it, but then also um, Obi-Wan Kenobi, like that series was fantastic. And I think now that Disney is able to sort of take Star Wars with the resources, all the resources Disney has and really make it back to its roots about storytelling and incorporate original characters and new characters, but they're doing it in such a way that I think is a lot better than when they tried to do it with the sequel trilogy. Do you think it's because of television's more cinematic approach? Because television has somewhat adopted a more cinematic level where it is the new cinema that give, gives a lot of more creative room for storytelling in terms of the cohesiveness element you just mentioned, because it's the same writers and directors with each episode of these series. Is that right? Um, it, well, Mandalorian had different directors throughout, um, but it was still, I think it's very, it's almost as if they took an MCU approach to mm. Star Wars following the sequel trilogy. And I think, like you said, and it's really interesting because I love television. I actually, I might like it more than TV. I'm not sure, but it's for that reason. 
or I'm sorry, more than movies, but I, it's for that reason, you get to sit with a character for an extended amount of time than you would in a two hour film. And I think that is part of why people are falling in love with the Disney Plus series, just because you're able to really grow with these characters and see their journey play out. Rather than with the sequel trilogy, we were sort of just thrown in with all these random characters who we didn't know at first. And we kind of did get a big tip off because if the prequel trilogy had come before the originals, it would have been less, it would have been more surprising because we pretty much know the the ending of that tragedy. Hell, you can even go back. You can even go back to, ironically, one of my favorite posters from the original, like from the Phantom Menace, because I may not look it, but I'm 31 years old. So I saw Phantom Menace when I was eight years old. And uh, one of my favorite posters, which is ironically the biggest tip off of the series is the one with Anakin Skywalker as a child. And he's, it just shows him this young, innocent child. And guess what, what's behind him? A shadow, a sh- like a shadow of shape of Darth Vader reflecting on this stone wall. That's awesome. It's a, no, it's one of my favorite posters, but it is probably the biggest tip off. And right there, you know, that the, the trilogy is going to be in this, going to tell this Faustian tale of a man being seduced by evil. And unfortunately they didn't even, I mean, not to shit on Hayden Christensen. I mean, I heard people have warmed up to him more with Obi-Wan. I'm, I'm not entirely sure because I haven't watched those shows and I was rather skeptical because, and this actually brings me to my next question. Do you feel that Disney will ever take a risk with Star Wars and telling new stories that have nothing to do with the, the, the aspects of the original trilogy? Because they are always linked in some sense. And when you think about the history of Star Wars in the beginning, I mean, the very, very beginning, the cultural phenomenon that exploded was not just the, the toy series, but the fact that they were able to create novels with, with characters that have nothing to do with Luke Skywalker or the, the original crew. Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. I think from a corporate standpoint, like putting myself in Disney's shoes, I imagine they would just because they bought it for such a hefty price tag. Like they have to, you know, make their return. Um, You know, I think it's, it's time will tell. It's just hard because I know for me personally, I like grew up watching like the prequels and the originals. And it's just, I have such an attachment to those characters as does so many fans that it might be hard to just start with such a fresh slate, considering even looking back how George Lucas was really able to make us fall in love with those original characters. I think if they, you know, got the right team around it, it could it, it could definitely um, succeed if they're introducing new storylines and characters. May I ask you on a, per- like, just as a personal question, what do you feel, why didn't you, I mean, aside from the lack of cohesiveness, because I agree with you, that would be the new sequel trilogy. What else didn't you like about those films? Because the only one I, I, I personally like is the second one, given that I felt it was the most sincerely made because it came from an auteur. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, yeah, well, like we said, it's, the, it's mainly the lack of cohesiveness, but I think there was also just sort of, I don't know, I did not feel as attached to those characters as I did Luke and Leia in the originals. I, I mean, I haven't thought about it deeply, but I, you know, it, it, it's just interesting to sort of look back and think on, um, but no, I mean, it's mainly the lack of cohesiveness. I mean, I think there were certain things 
that were like far-fetched that I like personally wasn't a fan of like when Leia um like flies back to the ship after it explodes yeah. like I wasn't the biggest fan of that um right. just because totally it's random. just like a right it almost feels very disconnected from the original because it's like well we never got to really see her powers develop like that um and granted we see it a bit in the new series that are coming out but you know that's basically it I can understand. I still haven't seen The Rise of Skywalker because I heard of the major critical uh, creative decisions they made and they changed <laughs> all based off reactionism. And that's what I guess that's probably the, another reason you probably didn't like them because they operated on pure reactionism. Yeah, no, I, I have to agree with that, too. Just thinking about that last one. Um, I mean, I, I joked around a lot in 2020 saying that that movie probably caused the pandemic because I was like, so I hated it so much. Um, oh, if, any film was a, if any film was a warning of the craziness of 2020 was Joker, in my view. Oh, <laughs> that, that is true. I will say I actually ended up seeing that mid 2020. So I didn't see it when it came out. I saw it late and I'll say it was pretty um, prolific in that. Mm, that is interesting but uh i guess moving on to star wars what type of cinema are you particularly attracted to that just inspires you to continue creating new stories are there any particular genres of films that you're interested in mostly over others or um yeah i i, I will say personally i do lean away from sci-fi despite being a fan of star wars um i love independent films mostly a lot of a24 films um mm -hmm. dramas and comedies are kind of where i tend to lean in both what i enjoy watching and enjoy creating um just because i think it's you're able to tell much more serious story and in-depth rather than these big blockbuster films that are all about action sequences um i don't know there's just something really great that i think a24 does where it's like you could sit down with the character and sort of see their whole life, which is different than yours. No, there's one A24 film I still haven't seen out of hesitation because of the rather graphic content, because I can see a lot of very, well, I can see very disturbing films, but there's there's just this one film, um, High Life with Robert Pattinson, which has a scene, and you'll know what I mean when you if you decide to see it. It was on Prime for a very long time, and I thought they'd never take it off, and it's it's a science fiction film, but one of those science fiction films that asks horrifying questions mm -hmm. and for disturbing sequences that it makes you question your own sense of humanity. And I think that's a unique perspective when it comes to any form of storytelling. And uh, are there any films that you feel that have taken on that approach, not simply from a sci-fi perspective, but just have left you questioning your own existence in a sense, or just your own place as a human being or what it means to be a human being? Oh my God. I mean, so many, one of the ones that I think is very clear is like Inception. I feel like that movie, like once you walk out of watching that, it's just sort of, you mm -hmm. had, you're forced to question your life and what reality is to you. Um, and then I'll say like, also, I think one of my favorite movies is the Florida Project, which is um, A24 as well. Um, and that just sort of stuck with me because it was such a different lifestyle than I grew up with. And even growing up, I grew up in New York City, so I was exposed to a lot, but it, it was just so like endearing and genuine that it sort of made me reflect on the world. What is the Florida Project about? Because I've seen, I've, I've browsed through Netflix seeing the preview for it, but I don't know what, I just know that Willem Dafoe is in the film and that it, it had a very experimental approach to it. 
Yeah, I mean, Willem Dafoe's awesome in it. Um, and so basically it's about this community. It's, they don't mention it, but it's outside of Disney World. Mm. Um, and it's loosely based off of a real community and it's Disney World deprives the outside area of a lot of resources. And so there's a whole demographic of people who can't get jobs there. And they're like the main source of, you know, income for the community who have tattoos, addiction issues, single parents, things like that. And so the story follows this young single mom and her daughter as they live out of a motel for the summer. And the, the little daughter is like seven, but she's always like getting into trouble. And the single mom sort of has to go um, to interesting means to support her daughter. And it's just about the life they live. And Willem Dafoe's the um, motel owner and he tries his best to help them but obviously he runs a business still and has to keep a professional boundary it, it's just it, it's really great it's heartwarming heartbreaking it's 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 everything yeah it certainly sounds fascinating and very poetic when you look at it from the idea that this is a, a community that is more representative of reality as opposed to disney at the realm of fantasy right the realm of fantasy and there's a writer i really like charles bukowski who actually you'd think that he openly expressed his hatred for Mickey Mouse. And when you, when you listen to why he hated Mickey Mouse, there's something very telling about it. Cause when you look at Mickey Mouse, what can you really say that's poetic or, or likable about him? He's cute. That's it. But there's no real dimension to him. No flair as opposed to another, another cultural cartoon icon, Bugs Bunny, which embodies a lot of the Jungian aspects of the trickster. If you read Joseph Campbell's book, he talks a lot about how the trickster in many ways is an archetype for a person who creates chaos. He's clever. He's attractive in so many ways. And and cinema has given us so many great tricksters like the Joker, uh, Hannibal Lecter, and even, God, what's a good, good example? What's another great example of, I mean, help me out here. What kind, would you, could you think of anybody who you think of that is like a, like someone who just creates chaos and makes you question the idea of morality and culture? Um, I mean, I will say one bad guy who I sort of, I mean, everyone despises, but also it's like, he has an interesting point of view is Thanos from like the, the MCU. Mm. Um, I, I don't know if he necessarily fits the archetype you're describing, but it's definitely, I think he's one of the bad guys where especially after he wins in the first movie, you're sort of left to question like, oh, well, like, does he have a point? <laughs> I don't know. I, I see a lot of TikToks and maybe it's like a general generational thing, but yeah. Well, I could see that he embodies certain, I wouldn't, I wouldn't know if I would call him a trickster. He seems more like the tyrannical father archetype from the Jungian perspective, but uh, in right. terms of the joke characters like the Joker and Hannibal Lecter, or even Alex from uh, Clockwork Orange. Have you seen Clockwork Orange? I have, yeah. They are tricksters in many ways that make you question morality and make you reanalyze what it means to be a good person. Because, I mean, I'm not saying I, I admire someone like Alex but from Clockwork Orange, because he is truly evil. But there is something respectable about the fact that he is genuinely evil as opposed to the society the film frames him in because the society he frames the world, uh, the world he lives in is a world that acts on pure complacency. Basically they're only the people in that film beside him are good because they're fear they're, they're afraid of being punished. And I, and I said something similar about Walter White from breaking bad to a friend 
despite the fact that he becomes a monster throughout the series, he was a better person as Heisenberg because he actually was a person in the beginning. He was only good out of complacency. And that's just something that the trickster kind of rails against. He goes against convention because he knows his own self-worth and, uh, yeah, I guess that's why I guess that's why Bugs Bunny to me was more had more dimension than Mickey Mouse. No, yeah, that's definitely interesting because people will also gravitate to those characters and arcs, I think, a lot because people are put into a box as society, right? Like there are certain rules we all agree to follow. We all follow the law. We don't break it, blah, blah, blah. And so it's very interesting, I think, for people to see a character that creates chaos when we as an audience no, we can't, but we could watch someone do it. And I think it's just interesting how those movies sort of gain a almost like cult following or just, or just like are critically acclaimed as well. Well, I mean, look at Heath Ledger's portrayal of the Joker. Look how many people just loved the idea this man felt was completely free. He didn't feel restrained by anything whatsoever. And I feel like right now we're in a period where there's a great room of it. Uh, like, like plenty of room for good storytelling given that the, the culture we're living in is in a state of constant change where many things are being questioned and a lot of institutions are kind of well they're losing the appeal that they once had and I wanted to ask you do you feel that there are any public figures that you feel constitute that archetype that challenge that notion um I, I mean in terms of being that archetype and causing chaos. I, I will have to say our previous president, Donald Trump, did a did a pretty good job on that. I think he's probably the most prominent pub, public figure to sort of stir the pot. And then also like, I, I mean, I think honestly, the the what I had just said about audiences gravitating towards that type of chaos, I think we saw a very good real life example of like him and um, his following. Mm, that's true. I mean, I would never... I was once accused of defending him when I said he was a fascist, when somebody said he was a fascist, I said, no, he'd have to believe in something. If anything, he's a buffoon. But because their politics is buffoonish in its own sense, people saw some authenticity in that. That's what I made a claim about. And I feel that because we're in a state, I mean, the culture itself is unraveling so many institutional bullshit that people just are attracted to these figures who speak more openly, even if you don't agree with their views. I don't agree with his views or Bernie Sanders, but they talk like human beings. Right. And I guess just the culture is, is hungry for that. And I don't know what kind of stories you can get out of that, but uh, I guess one perfect example was this, the, the cultural frustration in a film like the Batman. What I liked about that was it talked about so many issues about crumbling structures and just how there's this building frustration within society that it's erupting. I mean, look how many shootings we've had this year so far. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, it's interesting how I, I guess media or movies are starting to sort of reflect the state we're living in. Um, but I think it's also going to put us in a unique situation where people are going to have a desire for some form of escapism. And so I wouldn't actually be surprised if in the next decade, movies that parallel too closely to the life we're living lose, like people will lose interest in those, I think, to some extent, just because I think it's so overwhelming to just be 
like <laughs> alive these days. And it, it's like, there's always so much going on in the world and so much chaos, like we sort of said, that I think, I don't know, it'd be interesting to see if there's a trend between the movies that will come out over the next few years and whether or not they parallel to what we're living. Hmm. You, th you, you think that? Because it feels like those are the only things that can get, like, keep the attention of people, given that they're choosing those types of stories or narratives just as a way of getting away from the sense of disillusionment that prior institutions failed to live up to. I mean, let's be honest, who watches CNN or MSNBC anymore? Right. Yeah. Or, or even cable. I mean, YouTube or even podcasting is basically the new cable television or radio. Yeah. No, I, I mean, it's interesting. And I haven't done that much research on it. So I, I will say I can't comment fully on it. But I don't know. I think it's it's interesting even like in the sort of rise over the last few years of like a, t a tv show like the kardashians right like on hulu it's a very successful show because they rebooted the series and i think it's really? like part, part of that jesus <laughs> listen i guess that that's where the money at hulu is going i don't uh, i don't know but um it's you know i think it speaks to a larger desire to sort of people not wanting to be present in their own reality and to sort of see something like that or see someone else's life that is in a way better. It's interesting you, you bring up that element of not wanting to be in their own reality because one phenomenon I've noticed lately, and I guess you could say Ready Player One kind of predicted this, is the idea of the metaverse, basically interacting in a gaming community where you create your own avatar and buy your own real estate or just create your own new world and I wanted to hear your thoughts on that whether you see that as a, a positive or a negative um I think there are there are a lot of interesting possibilities which I, I will also get to but I think the overarching it's it's negative I think that mm. we can sort of allow people to escape their own reality not that people should ever feel stuck in their life but I think it's sort of it's not healthy <laughs> Yeah. it's you know like as as me being a storyteller and of course i'm sure you get this too it's like human to human interaction is so important like face to face and like seeing how people react in real time like i just don't think the metaverse can while there are so many possibilities for it i don't think it can ever replace the real world and i think that some people have the notion that it can and that's just sort of dangerous in terms of like where we could go with that in the future I will say though, in terms of film, um, there's this really interesting thing called right space. Have you heard of this? Or like right coin? Right coin? Yeah, like R-I-T-E. It's so it's related, it's a cryptocurrency essentially, but it's also related to the metaverse. And another, it, another shit coin, basically. <laughs> yes, it, essentially, but it's also interesting in that it's what it's going to allow people to, to do is basically invest the crypto they have of that coin into film projects and they're going to get a stake in the film and all the merchandising things that come after that and so while i don't necessarily like i wouldn't do it right now it is interesting to think because hollywood is so gate kept by these corporations and executives it's so hard to get something you love made if we use right space almost as a grassroots thing to like help fund these indie projects that otherwise wouldn't get made 
it can end up actually helping the industry, I think, in certain ways. But that's, I would say, like, just a fraction of the whole, you know, metaverse thing that's blowing up right now. I know this may be going off topic, but I, I think it is, that is a fascinating thing because I don't really care for the metaverse. I think Bitcoin is the only asset to rely on because of the way it operates in all the ways that most people don't even know how money really operates. Right. And unfortunately with those cryptocurrencies, other cryptocurrencies, all I see are just other fiat currencies that can be inflated or pumped and dumped. And this right coin, I mean, I'm sure that some of the creators have good intentions, but when it comes to the metaverse and the whole concept, I think it's going to fall apart because it just shares so many of the negative aspects that something like Bitcoin counters. And I want your, I wanted to hear you, what are your thoughts on Bitcoin? Just out of curiosity, because I think that the idea of inflation and Bitcoin acting as an inflationary hedge plays a role in the film industry, given that when you look at how a film, the films, the film model has changed, most people wouldn't, would probably be confused at the idea that inflation played a big role in that over the years. Yeah, I mean, me personally, I do. I have invested in Bitcoin. I don't do a lot of the side coins, like you sort of said. It's people really right. need to people really need to look into the, um, I, I think it's called like tokenomics of the coin and understand it. I mean, it's very simple economics, but like Dogecoin was something I would have never invested in because it was clear that there was, it was so plentiful, it couldn't possibly be worth anything. And then in the end, it turned out exactly like that. Um, in terms of how it's sort of being used to fight inflation, I mean, I'm not like, I'm not fully sure. Like I haven't, um, I, I was alive for the 2008 recession. I remember it briefly, certain parts, but nothing as to where like I could be like, this is how it's going to change the industry. I mean, I think it's just, it's all just up in the air because there are so many intersecting new things like the metaverse, but also like, is cable going away completely? Streaming, it's like the streaming wars right now. Like, how are people watching media? They're not going to the movie theaters anymore as much. It's just this whole sort of, gamble that I think because it's so many different factors it's going to be very hard to predict where the industry is going yeah because I there's actually a podcast I listen to called Valuetainment with uh, uh, Patrick Bet David and Adam Sosnick and I don't know the name of the guests they had I know the name of the other one um, on the guy named Rolo Tomasi and they were talking about how uh how uh this how streaming itself serves a similar purpose to other narratives like the 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 the, the drug war or the the forced inclusivity mo movement of woke culture and how they need a narrative to keep going otherwise it stops and the streaming sort of phenomenon as as beneficial as it has been in producing some really great tv shows you got to ask yourself what do you feel once you binge watch a television show you you feel like you need the story to keep going. But have you had that experience where you feel sort of empty after you finished a season of a show or actually binged a show you really liked and you just felt like you wanted more, but you don't get that same sensation with a full-length feature film? Oh, absolutely. I, I mean, like I sort of said earlier in the conversation, like I love TV and I think streaming has probably paid, played um, a big role in that. Um, I mean, there are so many shows where I'm just like, I want more, like you can't, because when you're sitting with a character or a group of people or in a setting, whatever it may be, for at least eight episodes, like, 
you're going to care about them and you're invested because you just spent eight hours of your life, like in these people's lives. Of course you, you know, you want more. I'm like that all the time. Like I just finished Stranger Things and I like, can't wait for the last season to come out. I, I, I only saw the first one, but not because I didn't like it. I just, it just didn't happen and it will happen. But I, 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 on a personal question, I mean, a personal question, how, how has it changed? Because I've heard rumors that the, the tone of the show has gradually changed following the second season. It has, it has changed a bit. I think it's the first season seems more independent to me and as if the Duffer brothers had a bit more freedom. I mean, I think they honestly have a lot of control over the story and um, Netflix seems to have been very good about that. But because it was such a massive success and because the demographics of the show just sort of like exploded and now like younger kids watch it and things like that, it feels a bit more, um, I mean, obviously it's on Netflix, but a bit more Disney-fied, if that makes sense. Almost how we were talking about with the um, Star Wars sequels. And that's it's just the topic of our next question. <laughs> okay, keep going. Um, but, uh, but no, yeah, it seems just a bit more... Um, jokey or like far-fetched whereas the first season for me like it was cool it was like sci-fi but it still felt grounded in a way and so there are certain elements that I think come in throughout the later seasons that are more um jumping the gun in a way well it's very interesting you bring that up because I've had the same feelings you've had with shows like Daredevil which I thought despite the fact that it was canceled, its ending was still good enough in a way where you could leave it there like you do with any comic book interpretation of a particular character. But now that after seeing Spider-Man No Way Home and his cameo and the possibilities of them of Disney Plus reviving the show, I mean, you, I, I can't tell you how furious I was when I saw the Netflix even took off the show and put mm-hmm. it on Disney Plus, like the original Netflix series. And that series is not for children at all. In fact, it's a show that isn't even afraid to be at the level of Breaking Bad or The Sopranos. Right. But uh, what are your thoughts on the idea that every show, every major show that could be taken more seriously is being Disney-fied, even, or the idea even specifically of Daredevil? I mean, it, it does. It's interesting you bring this up because this just happened with another show I was watching, um, which was Love, Victor, which it was originally slated for Disney+, Plus, and then they moved it to Hulu, it was on Hulu, then it like got popular and then Disney Plus just recently took it back. And so now it's on both platforms, but you could sort of tell in that last season that maybe they they had a bigger hand in like, oh, I think you should change this dialogue and such and such. But um, I, I'm very, I'm not gonna say anti-Disney because they own the majority of the industry. And at the end of the day, I need a job. But um, I will say they've sort of, um, I'm not a fan at all of the way they have taken over certain shows and bought out other um, companies and the way they're, I mean, it's interesting because they own both Hulu and Disney Plus and I've noticed over the past few months. They own Hulu? Yeah, they own Hulu, yeah. And um, they're sort of starting to, originally it was a sharp divide, right? Disney Plus was a lot of kids content, such and such. Hulu was like all the ABC shows, FX, Fox, things like that. And now they're starting to like sort of blend the two, which I wouldn't be surprised if they merged completely over the next few years. But like I saw Glee, which is an adult show on Disney Plus. And so it's very confusing. And I, like I said, I'm just not really a fan of the control that they have over projects because at the end of the day, they're a family business, family like run, like 
they gear it towards family and not everything has to be kid appropriate or family appropriate. And because there's such a, I would say like large and almost um, strict corporation in the way they run things and how they produce shows. Um, it's very, I, I hate it. Absolutely. Yeah. Same here, because although I love Disney in terms of the, a lot of the great work, art they've created, I feel that this level of control is very dangerous because it ultimately says they'll be able to decide what gets produced and what isn't just simply produced, but how it's produced. And I feel that there is a danger to that, especially how it educates people, because I remember a few years ago watching this uh, YouTube critic who talks more on political and social economic issues he brought up the film aladdin and used it as an analysis saying that the film is racist but he didn't say it was racist in a malicious sense so much like a cultural ignorance kind of level like where the people that were behind it were so ignorant of the culture of aladdin that although a very intelligent person could see ah, uh, they probably did it because they didn't know enough and didn't do enough research but someone who is not very well educated on the culture will actually believe that that is a an accurate depiction of the culture of Aladdin, like someone who's completely ignorant. Like a, one example, I had a friend, she's from England and she was once asked by someone from South Carolina, I think South Carolina or South Dakota, what do you speak in England? That borderline top level of ignorance. Yeah. Innocent, but very out of tune. Yeah, no, I, I mean, it's interesting that you bring that up. I, I, I'm not sure if you've seen it, but I want to encourage like all the listeners to check out if you like literally just Google like Disney assets and like go to images. There's like <laughs> it's like in the shape of a Mickey head, but it's all the assets Disney basically owns and runs. So like 20th Century Fox, like all these things that you like, I had no idea they ran. And it just will show like how much control. But also that is a very important point that you just brought up in terms of cultural um, significance of films. And I don't think Disney really has done a great job with that whatsoever. I think they've sort of always tended to show up late to like the inclusion party of like doing things right in terms of culture. Um, I just was talking about something somewhat similar on TikTok the other day, which I was saying, I personally have noticed this trend at Disney with the Marvel films, which is they will only sort of tap into directors of color or female directors for films that have a female lead or a person of color lead. Like, like Ryan Coogler isn't getting the opportunity to direct the next Avengers, right? Even though we know he can like bring in immense box office money. And oh, so- I think, was an incredible film. Yeah, I, and so like, it's, it's something I sort of brought to light on TikTok, but I was talking about it because I, I, I just think it's like ridiculous, you know? It's like, there's so many different, um, directors out there so many different voices and we're either tapping into the same ones or ones that have historically like been in control of the industry and so I, I just sort of think if we got other directors who are more familiar with cultures like you're describing it would translate into a much more um what's accurate and um like an accurate portrayal of different cultures I, I bring that up because there's something that I feel that is a topic that is too delicate to discuss because of the rise of cancel culture, because I believe in inclusivity, but I have a problem with the force type, because not only does it derail from the objective of storytelling or just any, any real sincere artistry, but 
it actually is insulting to a, that group in particular. It, play, it makes them out to be more victimized as opposed or or catered to as opposed to letting um, giving them a genuine level of respect. I mean, I guess the you just noted several examples where they won't choose a female Marvel lead unless the person is of color, and that's just very limiting. I think they should just choose the best person for the job, regardless. I mean, for me, I don't really care whether a person's about a person's color or their sexual orientation. It's irrelevant to me. Right. And I just want your thoughts on this forced this idea of forced inclusivity. Do you see it as a detri- as as a detriment or I mean, I think it's I mean, looking at it in the way of that right? Like female directors are boxed into female-led films. I don't agree with that. I think they need to be, female directors should be um, considered, of course, for directing jobs regardless of the Mm. main character's gender identity. I mean, that's sort of the way I've always stood by it. Um, In terms of, I mean, yeah, it's just sort of, I I agree that like, right for Shang-Chi, which is like the first Marvel Asian film, like, it would be great to get an Asian director and like they did. It's just, I think that like that director shouldn't be boxed into like Asian <laughs> superhero films. Like he could direct spider, like other things that are outside the box. So in yeah. terms of that, like, I think that is wrong. And Disney has been doing that a lot lately. Yeah. And take a look at a perfect example of a, of a something that counters that. I mean, the first John Wick film was directed, I think, I don't know if the stunt coordinators are American or if they have some European background, but John Wick was noted was notable for as an action drama with multiple influences, inclu- including Japanese anime, Hong Kong cinema, and which I'm not familiar with at all. Mm-hmm. But uh, hell, even his appearance, even in the physical appearance that Keanu Reeves has, makes you think that more of an Asian actor rather than because of the long hair and you've seen a lot of, I mean. This, I guess the standard Japanese cinema or Hong Kong cinema hero has long hair and, and in a suit. So you just think of that. So, but again, they didn't have to be Asian to tell a story that incorporates Asian elements of Asian cinema. Right. And I think if they do it correctly and like appropriately and with the consideration and compassion that is needed to tell a story authentically, then I don't like really have an issue with it like for me personally like I don't agree with the whole thing of like like I personally I'm Asian and white like I'm not black but like I would like to tell like a black story um or a story revolving around um a black cast it's just that I if I were to do that I would make sure that I had um you know black creatives either as producers or writers or some sort of above the line position that I know can help guide that project to Mm. be culturally appropriate and i think that's the key thing that a lot of companies need to be doing that's that's interesting because oh god i've almost almost lost my train of thought i mean um what's a good example i mean yeah jack kirby the creator of black panther he's white he was white and he was jewish Mm -hmm. and nobody would assume and he just took influence of what was going on in the 60s with with the black, I think it was yeah, the sixties, the Black Panthers and the civil rights movement. He created a character who's black. Yet I'm sure that most people wouldn't know that. But it also makes me think of the thing you mentioned of Stranger Things on how it's become Disney-fied, because 
but then the first two seasons were more independent. I feel that, I mean, do you feel about that with a film like John Wick? Because I remember one of the actors from the movie saying that the first one is more cinema based as opposed to the two that came after it. I mean, I think it's sort of, I mean, I can't speak specifically to John Wick, but like, I think that's just sort of a general trend in terms of the first film from like an upcoming filmmaker. Of course, it's going to have more cinematic elements, like just because either they A, went to film score, B, have just been immersing themselves in the art. And so the second a movie like that gets popular, the the corporations, Disney or whoever it is, just immediately want to cash in on the next one and make more money, essentially. And so I think that sort of loss in cinematic value and art comes from, I think, the quick, like, turnaround, like, okay, let's, like, just get the next shot or, like, you know, very simple things in order to save money and make the most money back. Well, I doubt Disney could ever Disney fly something like John Wick. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, li- listen, don't, don't knock it. You don't know. <laughs> oh, God. I mean, how can you Disney fly a guy that kills men with pencils? <laughs> um, are there any are there any other films you're looking forward to? I'm just I mean, are you any are you working on any particular projects at the moment that you'd like to discuss? Um, yeah, I mean, right now we're in post-production on this short film called The One Who Abandoned Me. Um, it was created by this young director. Her name is Faith Wynn. Um, it's about Asian American hate and identity. Um, it essentially follows a young teenage boy who witnesses a hate crime, and he's Korean. Um, and he is very Americanized and doesn't speak the language and basically isn't able to help. In where, that, in where exactly? Uh, in America, it takes place in America. Oh, if I you said somewhere in Korea, and I but I didn't. Oh know. no, yeah. So so he's Korean. Um, like he's a Korean American, mm-hmm. but he's very Americanized. Like he grew up here. He doesn't speak Korean. Um, and so when the hate crime happens, he essentially isn't able to help because of the language barrier, and just sort of flees out of his own fear of the situation. And the short film follows him the next day or two as he deals with his guilt and questions his own, own identity as an Asian American. Um, and so, yeah, that's in that's in post-production right now. Um, we're also doing fundraising right now. So if anyone listening wants to become an executive producer for a few thousand dollars, you know, hit me up. But um, it's, you know, it's a great story and it was such a blast making it. And I, I can't wait for people to see it. And are there any feature length projects you're interested in discussing? Um, it's definitely, I think, I, I, like me personally, the way I sort of go about it is like, I want to master like short films completely and then move on. I would love within the next four years to shoot a feature. I like whether that's like doable or not, like we'll see. But um, I mean, yeah, I, I, I'm a big believer, I will say, in short form content. And I know that goes back to a bit about what we we're discussing about streaming and things like that. But I think that the audience for two and a half hour films is shrinking every day. Like, I don't know why, but I know a lot of the people I tend to talk to are just sort of like, I would much rather, like I I will sit down and watch three episodes that are an hour each of a show, but I won't sit down and watch a two and a half hour movie. It's just, it's this weird psychological thing with everyone's attention spans shrinking. And so I, I, I would like to shoot a feature, but I don't know if that's necessarily the future actually of storytelling right now. Do you see a future where short form cinema becomes much more expansive? 
are you saying in terms of like value or well value and just quality well better well i think short the short form cinema has always had had no issues with better, with great quality i mean there have been a lot of well-made short films yeah. but i'm talking about just more expansive because i once had an interview of a filmmaker who's a friend of mine and he told me that that it's just it's not it's a, it's much more difficult to sell the idea of a short film as opposed to a feature length even a feature length despite the fact that feature length films are kind of losing their stride and that does have to do with the fact that you mentioned the attention spans of people just severely depreciating. Yeah. I mean, I know a really popular thing, it seems, for younger filmmakers or especially independent is to do a short film that basically acts as a proof of concept for when you pitch a feature. And so the short film is, you know, lower budget and it essentially would tell a similar story. Um, And then when you pitch that to networks, it's like right there, they could see it. I mean, I'm not... I, I will say I don't have like that much experience in terms of pitching features or things like that. Um, but no, I mean, of course, if the opportunity came my way, I would absolutely love to. Hmm. And do you think it's because, are you attracted to the short form filmmaking because of the more experimental quality you can do with short films? Because I've seen short films, because one thing I noticed about their end, the, a lot of the endings of short films is that there's just like a greater there's more room for a certain type of ambiguity that it leaves you with questions as opposed to giving you definitive answers. Yeah, I mean, I will say I kind of, I, I agree with that. And I, I like that it's sort of, I don't know, like it's an interesting, well, from a filmmaking standpoint, it's an interesting task to sort of grip the audience in. It's in such a short amount of time and to tell an entire story arc that I, I love short films that leave questions at the end like I think that's like the best like I think less is better in terms of like the like stuff like that but like I I mean why I personally gravitate to it as an audience member um I mean I will say like it does have a lot to do with time and my attention span like I'm not gonna lie and say um you know I think it's I, I it's definitely interesting like you said there can be things done in short films that can't in features um but I mean, even in short form content in terms of like episodic television, like I, I also love that. And I think it's actually, I think short films, I don't know. I don't know. It, it, it's interesting, but I, yeah, I don't know. I would definitely, um, I mean, I like watching movies still, but I guess I lean more towards shorter form content. I, can, I guess I, I, I just recognize the experimental quality because I do like that you I mean basically what you said that you can't tell a whole story in a short film but it seems like that becomes that disadvantage can be turned into an advantage in terms of a, an ending because it just leaves you it gives more room for leaving questions as opposed to giving a definitive answer which in that case would probably be a very bad one if because i don't know how you could give a definitive answer to a short story like that in such a short amount of time for an ending Right. And I, I love that because as a filmmaker and as an audience member, I love when there's a discussion after the film. Like if you're going to see a film and afterwards you walk out of the theater with your friends and no one says anything, like, I'm sorry, that was like not a good film. Like good films, in my opinion, you walk out and go to dinner and you're talking about it for the entire conversation. What did it mean to you? What did this scene mean? And I love when there's not a definitive answer 
because we're able to sort of take elements of our own life, apply it to the short film or feature in, the, um, in certain cases, and then also just sort of see like differently how like I see the film because of my personal life influence and things like that, um, if that makes sense. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I mean, with me, I, me and a friend a few years ago saw the movie Nocturnal Animals with Amy Adams and Jake Gyllenhaal, and we were just we wouldn't stop talking about it. And today, it's like a great today, even to this day, it's like a special film we share because just I mean, the fact that we went into it without seeing a trailer for the film was made the experience that more influential. But just the fact that the ending was so ambiguous and it left you with multiple questions of what possibly would have happened for that ending is very telling and I'm curious is there any film you've seen no it doesn't have to be recent that left you that same effect I will say one of them that is like burned into my head it's actually not a film but it's the ending of the Sopranos which mm. um, I mean I think that is like one of the best endings in television people hated it I, I like did my research because obviously I wasn't old enough to see it at the time but like when it aired but people hated that when it came out and I'm sitting here like that was the best ending I've ever seen in a television show just for so many different reasons but then every single adult who's seen it who I will talk to about it has a different like thought of what happened whether he died or not and well there's this clue and this and this and so it's like it's a whole thing and I I just love that want to cheat and give your own interpretation I I will say I think he died I will just I, I I'm not gonna get fully into it but like I've done because I was obsessed with the show for a while it's my favorite television show um you know I I did the research there's a lot of alluding to it throughout the season actually in certain things I think one of the most clear one is like um the character Bobby says they're they're like at their some vacation home and they're talking about him and Tony are talking about what they think happens after death and Bobby's like I think it's just black and like mm-hmm. such and such. And then later in the season, it's exactly what happens. And yeah, I mean, oh Next my God. I wish, abrupt. Yeah. And I, I really wish more of, um, you know, young millennials or older Gen Z, like of course people who are old enough to understand the gravity of the show would watch it. Cause it's just so fantastic. And it, just talk about good storytelling. Like they, they knew what they were doing. If, I, that actually makes me ask you something about Gen Z and millennial culture. What do you feel their relationship with cinema is? Because, no, no, how do you feel about the relationship between millennial culture and Gen, and Gen Z? Because I feel that a lot of Gen Z and millennial culture isn't very well, well ingrained in cinema. And I guess one example of this was like I re- a few about a year ago, I saw the film The Irishman. And although there's a moment where Robert De Niro's character shows the nurse that's taking care of him, who looks rel- very young, you know who this is. And it's a picture of Al Pacino, even though he plays Jimmy Hoffa in the film, that serves as a metaphor for, I'm sure plenty of millennials in Generation Z would be unfamiliar with some of the most classic actors and directors of prior generations, even though you're you're familiar with directors like Kurosawa or Tarvosky. Yeah, no, I've noticed that too. And I, I think it's very unfortunate, the lack of sort of understanding of like, history and certain things like I can't tell you how many people my age um watch like once upon a time in Hollywood and don't know that it's like that some of the characters were real life people like Sharon Sharon Tate and um Roman Polanski things like that McQueen right and it's just sort of it's unfortunate 
And I, I just, I mean, of course, I, I'm a big believer that media educates people. It's like the easiest way. I just, yeah, I don't even know like what a potential solution to it would be, but I have noticed that. And I think it's just sort of unfortunate that my generation isn't as cultured around certain things as older generations. I feel the prior generations weren't just more cultured, but they were just more psychologically mature. They could they could tackle topics that were controversial or just capable of causing discomfort. I mean, I think now, I think it would be much more controversial. I mean, there are pl- I've heard in many podcasts and discussions of all sorts of shows and movies that could be not be made without sp- at least sparking some form of controversy. And I mean, perfect example is even a filmmaker, I'm sure none of our generation or the generation after has heard of, uh, Ingmar Bergman. Right. But uh, yeah, I guess it's just a matter of willful determination to gain a better perspective of what came before. But I also noticed on your profile that you worked as a photographer and uh, has that influenced your work as a filmmaker as well in any specific level? Yeah, actually, um, that's when you mentioned that because I think it has because as a photographer, your job is to capture a story in one image, capture an entire story, whatever's happening, capture in one image. And so it places so much importance on one frame and the framing and the staging within that. And I think that directly applies to filmmaking, both in directing and um, DPing. It's every single shot you do in your film should be important and should forward the story more and should also tell a story in itself and contribute to it in some way. And so I think that, you know, doing that as a photographer has really helped me as a filmmaker, just in trimming down the fat in terms of like shots and like what we're filming. Um, But no, yeah, I think it's helped me a lot. Are there any particular, is there any particular type of imagery that uh, has your attention whenever you take, whenever you were taking pictures or did you just take it at random? Um, I, I mean, I, I did a lot. So I've done landscape and portraits and things like that. I kind of like unstaged portraits, like very in the moment, almost um, mm. documentarian style, um, just because I think it's so much more authentic than a staged portrait in a studio or something like that. You're catching someone in their natural habitat, whether it's like at the park or doing something they love. Um, throughout 2020 and 2021, I photographed a lot of protesters and things like that. And just being able to see like the raw emotions in their faces told the whole story almost. Mm, that's interesting. And do you, do you feel that photography can play a big role in documentary filmmaking? Yeah, of course. I mean, there's the whole thing of like a picture tells a thousand words. And I think that just stays very true. Um, I mean, in terms of I'm not the biggest, like me personally, I, I I, although I have done small documentaries, like it's not really what I what I want to pursue. Um, but you know, I think pictures are sort of mini documentaries in a way, just because they're you know telling telling a story that's usually based off of real life. Do you feel like the documentary itself has shifted in ter- in terms of the way the narrative is approached? Because I I recent a few months ago I saw some documentaries by Werner Herzog and they just seem radically different to the way their ma- documentaries are made now. I mean, they just feel much more raw in the way they they're capturing 
the the narr- the narrative or just the images that they're showing as opposed to more modern the more modern ones where there is more narration and dialogue in, the, in capturing the moment i just wanted your opinion on that um i mean there's definitely i feel like i, I don't know if i've necessarily seen enough documentaries no mm-hmm. i i sort of think there's almost like um in terms of modern ones there's like very straightforward like a lot of the ones on netflix about like fire festival or like something like that where it's very straightforward with like interviews photos accounts and like I'm not necessarily as big of a fan as, as of those um but I, I saw I'm not sure if you saw Flea um but it, it's a documentary it's picked up a ton of awards but it it was so great because it combined essentially animation with this guy's narrative. And so this guy is telling this story about when he was a child, what it was like um, growing up in his country and then having to flee. Um, and so, but it animates the entire thing. And it was actually based off of a, a video documentary where this guy's friend, you know, ha- recorded the guy in real life. Um, and they went over with it in animation and sort of did the interviews like that, even though it, it, it cuts to the interviews rarely, but, um, which I, I thought it was just so artistic and so interesting. Um, that just stays in my mind as well as um, I think Paris is Burning did also a lot for documentaries because um, if you've seen that, it's just so raw and in the moment that I think it sort of opened the door for a lot of that style to come in. It's interesting that you bring that up. They used animation to and incorporated it into the way the narrative was demonstrated because it's kind of, it functions like not just like an alteration of reality and how reality itself can be is much more subjective than we realize. And it seems like if this was being told from someone's perspective, even on a documentary, it just gives room for that. And, right. it, and it makes me think of the way, and this is somewhat different, but uh, are there any forms of art? Are there any particular artists that you like? Uh, are you saying in terms of like painting? painters? Painters? Yes. I'm sorry. No, all good. Um, but Karma Artist has become broader over time, so. Yeah, I I'm not, I, I will say I'm not like a specific fan of any like singular one like other people are. Well, I, I get the reason I ask is because a few, uh, a while ago, I saw this clip of Christopher Nolan talking about how Francis Bacon was a major and is a still major influence in his films. And if you look at the portraits, Francis Bacon made, which are very colorful and somewhat violent in the way they're depicted. That depends on your interpretation. But the one thing they share is that they distort reality and sense. And when you look at Nolan's approach towards reality in all his films, even the more mainstream ones, that that element is carried on. And I just found and the way you describe this documentary and the approach, there's something similar about it, how he used animation to reconstruct his perception of his own reality and his experiences and I guess that that there's something fascinating about that but uh what are your thoughts on the documentary in terms of a more of a more tv that is that are made into a tv series um I I mean I think it I'm trying to think which ones I saw recently um in terms of like straight documentary I I mean I think it's it depends what the story is. If, if the story can go on for eight episodes and there are plot twists, like essentially if it can follow the plot of like a straight narrative, like 
I'm fine with that. But there are certain stories that don't need to be eight episodes long and can be, you know, a one and a half hour documentary. Um, I mean, I guess I'm a fan of both. Like, I'll, I'll sit down and watch one every once in a while. Um, I will say I'm a big fan of more um, dramas that are rooted in real life like things that happened uh, I, I like those a lot like I just finished um the dropout on Hulu mm -hmm. which isn't a documentary but it's very historical and it was based off of you know a lot of the um interviews with people and things like that and so it, like I like that more just because I like to see it and I think that's why I also gravitated towards Flea because you're essentially watching what he saw as a kid unfold which we would have no knowledge of under or understanding of what that looks like but you know being able to watch the, a story unfold through the eyes of the people that were there I think I like I just love that what was the dropout about specifically since it was based on a particular event yeah so it was about the sort of rise and fall of Elizabeth Holmes who was uh. a CEO. yeah and um for those who don't know who are listening she ran Theranos which is a biotech company she basically scams a lot of people and people got sick, people got hurt. Um, and so it's just about how she was able to pull it off over like over a decade. It was crazy. I definitely recommend you guys watch it. Oh yeah. There's a, there was a whole segment on this, on this, well, it's a YouTube channel as well as a podcasting channel, Cold Fusion, which is more based off tech, which more centers more on technology and the variety and the many elements of it and its incorporation into culture but he did talk about the elizabeth Holmes story and how her company was like re uh, revolutionizing healthcare or just the way they approach medicine or or just biology but i mean i haven't followed anything since then i don't know even know what happened with her what's happened to her since <laughs> no yeah she i i mean she's going to jail eventually um i i think she's free right now but we'll i mean well, the story is definitely not finished, but for the most part, it was just so interesting because like, it's almost like you said, like, I didn't have really a recollection of it happening from when it happened. I remember hearing about how great it was, this new sort of science breakthrough, um, but then almost nothing about the downfall of it. Um, but so it's just, it's just, yeah, it's very interesting to look back on. Yeah, the story around her has certainly gained more popularity as well, given the just her personality as well, and the indications that she might have been psych might might be a psychopath, but also just her her approach of some market how she marketed this company as in some entrepreneurial pioneer. Because she one thing that was noticed that she dressed like Steve, she took like a Steve Jobs approach and even talked yeah. like yeah, no, it was definitely interesting. And I think I've also if we look at the TV season for this past year there's also this really interesting trend of stories like that, almost like these rise and fall stories. Cause we had like, um, like I said, the dropout about Elizabeth Holmes, we had on Apple TV, We Crashed, which is about um, WeWork and how it grew into like a several billion dollar company. And then essentially like the whole company crashed and things went AWOL. And then we also had um, Inventing Anna about, um, I'm blanking on her last name, but she was essentially pretended to be a socialite in New York, scammed all these people um, out of all this money and then ended up going to jail and things like that. I, I think that's a really interesting niche, which has popped up in the last like year or two, um, which I guess people are very into because they've done pretty well, I think, um, in terms of like viewer retention.
That's that's interesting because if this is like a trend where they pick the, where they're depicting the rise and fall of a particular figure, what do you think about the phenomenon? Because it seems like whether some it seems like it, it depends more on their success that they become a target. Like, uh, I mean, I've noticed that there's been a lot of negative traction towards Mark Zuckerberg following Cambridge Analytica, and uh, although. I do worry about the way these figures, not just how, not how they make their wealth so much as how they operate their company. I always feel that regardless of how successful you are in that type of venture, you're going to become a target one way or the other. And I want you to know your curiosity as, as to what is it do you, th- do you think that attracts people to these types of stories, the, the success or the failure? Um, I will say, I think it's the failure in terms of, you know, the stories I just listed, because I think people, it's kind of gross, but I think we, especially like as an American society, love to see people fail in a way. Mm-hmm. It like makes us, I think, feel better about where our lives are at, even if, you know, they're still better. I mean, it's definitely, it, it's almost like a double-edged sword. Cause like I mentioned the Kardashians before, like everyone loves to watch success and dream about, you know, having all that money. But at the same time, it's like, we can all sit down and watch something like that, or like Tiger King, that was so, I never saw that, but it was so popular over quarantine. It was like one of the biggest hits on Netflix, I think. I remember that. I didn't yeah. even know what it's about. Yeah, I, like I don't even fully know either, because like I said, I haven't seen it, but it's, I think, a similar story to the ones I've sort of mentioned. I think people like it like that, just because, I, I mean, I guess people like to see other people fail. I think it's also it's a form of escapism also how we talked about of like I can go live almost vicariously through this character's life and not have to face any of the consequences they face and I don't know I I just think that's interesting yeah because it makes you wonder what kind of culture we live in to be obsessed to that extent I mean I just recently saw natural born killers and Mm -hmm. One thing I did while, because I did a review for it on this podcast, and you know, I'll, if you want, I'll send you a link to it. What I found very fascinating about learning is that, um, the, st- that the film actually inspired some copycat crimes. And obviously in that kind of scenario, people would blame the filmmaker, or the storytellers, the actors, but it makes you wonder what kind of a culture would be so deprived to want to replicate those kind of things rather than, than, than distinguish it. I mean, I don't think that it was made to inspire those crimes, but for people to, to be willing to uh, copycat them, that just tells you, sorry, losing my train of thought here. No, that, no I mean, I, I completely understand what you're saying. I mean, I think there's this weird part of American culture where we just see stories like that, even the failure, um, but also the success and we're we're technically you know when we create these sort of stories for Hulu and Netflix and things like that it is in a way uplifting these people who in no way deserve to be uplifted like they hurt a lot of people Mm. they did horrible things yet we're still giving them a platform and telling their story and I think that sort of also gives people this sort of misdirection that even if they do something bad they can still be hailed as like a hero or seen like on this sort of platform of being renowned. And I think that's also sort of dangerous because our culture has such a hunger for like fame and things like that. I think there's also a danger to that because when you when you single out the film as being the cause for these crimes, it kind of distracts from the bigger issues at hand that would lead people to 
want to use that as a source of inspiration for such violence. Like, uh, do you remember the whole craziness with Joker when it came out? Many media companies, were, no, media outlets were blasting it before it came out, saying it would trigger violence and mass shootings. And yet it didn't do that. Right. And yet the film, ironically, tackles many of the issues these same outlets would never talk about because they might get people thinking much more critically. Right. No, I mean, uh, I completely agree agree with that sort of it's almost not it's like never the filmmaker like to be quite or the artist like to be like quite frank I think that you know in terms of like Joker did so much for mental health like sorry to like you know break the bubble for anyone who doesn't think that but I think it had amazing commentary on mental health men's mental health how stigmatized it was and bullying and it's like all these different topics that aren't talked about enough um but no, yeah, because I think in turn, when you see that sort of copycat thing that happens after a film like Natural Born Killers, it usually, I think, stems a lot from, like, it didn't just happen overnight, like, they saw the film and decided to do something. There are a lot of more um, institutionalized issues in our society that contribute to when people do that. Yeah, and it's also a matter of framing. Like, I was, I wrote this in my Substack for the film Taxi Driver, like, have you seen Taxi Driver? I have not. Oh, God, I can't. I don't know how to spoil this. I guess I'll just use an example, <laughs> something that's recently happened. Like, I'll just give you my, a mild description. Like, the character that Robert De Niro plays is mentally ill, and he does something that is perceived as heroic by the public at the end, but he was also in the process of doing something much more controversial. And if he had followed through with that, they would have had a different perception of him. And I used that to compare him to the Uvalde, Texas shooter. I mean, how different would he have been framed if instead of a group of innocent children, he had shot up a group of, of crooked central bankers or a, gr a group of pedophiles and child molesters? Right. Despite the fact that he was still mentally ill and the fact that he had access to a gun that easily. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's definitely interesting how perceptions can shift with details like that. Or easily. And that just tells that's something very telling about the society itself, how it could just turn against itself or just turn in one direction. So much so that it makes a movie like The Matrix even more relevant, because I always found the idea of the simulation more, that people always misinterpret it as like where it's like a brain in the jar kind of scenario. But I always look at that as more like it's just another a, a narrative that can be manipulated. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And even dominant. And uh I mean, have you seen The Matrix? I actually, I, I think I've seen most of it. I, I, I don't know. It, it might have been a while ago. But like, I, I, I know the general concept of the film and things like that. Yeah, and it just, I mean, that, that concept of the simulation can be applied to a multitude of factors, whether you're talking media or the perception of certain individuals. Right. It's basically like the, I don't know if this is a term on, I don't know if I'm coining it, the Snowden effect. I remember when he was, when he unveiled all those files, he basically says that they make the story about you rather than the issue. Mm -hmm. And uh, I guess, yeah. in a, just like the last question I have on documentaries, um, I wanted to know what exactly made you, attracted you to them in the beginning to work on them? I know you said you're not necessarily a big fan of documentaries, but what particular subjects attracted you to those specific projects? Um, in terms of the documentaries I've done, it's just sort of, I think, well, at the time, if I remember correctly, I was in like a documentary class at like 
um, it's called the Ghetto Film School, which is a great nonprofit. Um, and so I was taking a documentary class with them because it's like, I've always had that sort of global perspective and like, I need to know every aspect of filmmaking, even though I don't want to go into documentary, it's storytelling still at the end of the day. It's learning how to tell a story in a different format. And so it was just important for me to sort of get my feet wet with something like that. I'm also a big fan of mockumentaries like Parks and Rec and things like that. And so, you know, eventually if I want to create one of those one day um, as like a television series, it's like so helpful to have a, somewhat of a background in documentary. And is there any particular subject that would make, make you more attracted to doing something around the area of a mockumentary? Um, oh my God. I mean, I love like political mockumentaries like Veep. I, I love Veep. I, I think it's like an awesome show. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's topics that I think, I don't know, because mockumentaries are usually comedies. Like I haven't seen them done really as dramas as much, but, um, you know, I think it's subjects that we need to lighten up on or laugh about and yeah. things like that I, I would do a mockumentary for and uh, that makes me want to ask and i hope this isn't a per like too personal a question and i'm not asking your political leanings per se but what are your thoughts on more like the climate of politics today like um, your, your view on it overall i mean mine borders on a cynical pessimistic one but yeah, I mean, I think we're in a really bad place politically. Um, also, you know, socioeconomically, it's just like, it, it's, it's a big mess. Like we're, we're the American experiment for sure. I think that slogan still holds true because I feel like a lot of the time, you know, politicians have no idea what they're doing or, you know, a lot of them are very corrupt and things like that um, with just establishments that have been in our country for so long. Um, but, you know, and I think it's also interesting because I think the Veep creator had something to say about how it's almost like politics are a little too serious right now to be poking fun at. And I think that's that's like an interesting. He said that? Uh, yeah, I believe so. It, it was some sort of interview, like article I was reading. But and it, it, it gave way to almost them not necessarily ending the show, but leaning towards ending it. And eventually they did. I think they ended it the year into like Donald Trump's presidency. And I think at a certain point, like in terms of political satire and things like that, like I, like I did a mockumentary for like a class project. It was like a political satire about this girl who was in like QAnon. And, and like, there are certain things that like, I think you could still poke fun at, but like on the large scale, it's like, oh, this is messy. Like people are getting hurt people don't have healthcare, things like that. And so when I think it starts having big consequences in real life, it's just sort of like, how can we, it, it becomes a lot harder to, to sort of make um, that comedic. Yeah, I think it, I, I feel the same way in the sense that like where I hear rumors that he might run again. I'm not necessarily worried about, well, I'm not worried about democracy dismantling as a result of that. I find it's just gonna be another form of entertainment because that's all politics has devolved into. Right. In my view, I never thought he was this dictator. I saw him as just like a t-shirt, a phenomenon. I mean, what does it say about the culture that uh, how deprived it is if it's going to elect a reality television star? 
Right. And I mean, yeah, that sort of goes back to just a lot of the other things we've talked about of this sort of false sense of reality that I think Americans have because of all, or not because of all content, but because of certain content and reality TV, it's just sort of, it's blurred the lines between what's normal for people. And I think what's just sort of very out there and insane. And we've sort of lost our train of um, like common sense critical thinking either. I mean, a few years ago, I saw the comedian Bill Maher and his show real time when I was a fan and it was interesting. Uh, he had this neuroscientist, Sam Harris, who's been critical of Islam and regardless of what you feel, I mean, I felt that the criticisms he made were, I mean, the way he approached it was sensible and yet Ben Affleck attacked him. And right after that, somebody actually thought that would be a great idea if Ben Affleck became president of the United States just for that. And that just tells you the way our, our critical thinking has, has been approached. And uh, I guess on my final question, when it comes to feature length, is there any particular story, type of story you would like to tell as a feature length that, that, it would, that you feel you would need to tackle at the right time, since I know you're still trend in that, that phase of short, film, short form filmmaking? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting you bring up the sort of concept of time because like for me it's like in order to do like a big project like that like the story has to be I think timely and like at the right time certain stories just sort of are too ahead of its time or you know too late to the party and so I I mean I don't like specific story wise I don't know I because in terms of like a lot of the pitches that I've created and things like that they lean towards tv just just because like I said I I think that's just sort of the future but I, I don't know. I'm trying to think. I mean, but definitely leaning towards that A24 style of like gripping the audience through drama and almost through this um, gritty realness. Um, it, it would definitely be a story that's based in um, like based in the present, like here on here on Earth. Nothing, nothing out of this world type um, thing. But yeah. I share a similar sentiment because aside from my screenwriting, I do short stories and I, there's a part of me that one day would like to tackle more of a novel like approach, but even there I'm hesitant because who knows how much time that would just take and what kind of dedication you would have to give that. I don't know if I'm in that mature state, but uh, Jackson, I really want to thank you for being on this episode of the podcast and uh before I go, I just wanted to know where can people learn? I know I understand I have your profile, but are there any other places that people can go to learn more about you, your line of work, and your and just everything you've done so far as as a student of film? Yeah, sure. I mean, thank you again for having me today. I mean, it's been just uh, such a pleasure getting to talk and uh, about this industry and everything. Um, but yeah, people can find more um, about me at jacksonvanhorn.com. That's my website or on Instagram. Uh, my handle is at Jackson Van Horn. And uh, are all those on your LinkedIn profile as well? Yes. Okay. I'll include all those in the description. And if you ever want to be on this ep on the podcast ever again in the future, just send me a message and I'll be happy to talk to you again because I really enjoyed our conversation. And uh, I'll definitely send you this episode once I'm finished editing it. Absolutely. Sounds good. Thank you so much again for everything. Oh, it's not a problem. It was a pleasure speaking with you and good luck to you with your career and your work in short film and anything else you got, you're going to tackle. Thank you. You too. You have a good one. All right. See you.